0: A prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Alkashite. The Lord is a jealous on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, the rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. This is what the Lord says, although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. And the second reading is from 2 Peter 3, verses 8 to 13. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells.
1: Thanks for uh, reading the Bible to us this afternoon, Laura. Um, I'm going to, I know we've prayed a lot so far this afternoon. Um, I'm going to pray again. Um, And praise God for that prayer that Matt led us through. I sort of um, want an amen to those words. I'm going to ask now that as we reflect on um, the Bible, that actually God will help us make sense of it um, in our own hearts and minds. So let me pray. Our dear Lord and loving Heavenly Father, uh, we pray now as we reflect upon the words we read in the Bible Uh, that your spirit will be alive amongst us, each one of us, in our minds, in our hearts, and that you may have a word for us uh, this day, um, that we may be encouraged, challenged, rebuked, spurred on, uh, wherever it is we are, Lord. Please speak to us this afternoon, and we pray this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, Well, we are back with the Minor Prophets. Um, If you're new with us this afternoon, uh, going back some weeks, there are 12 what they call Minor Prophets in the Old Testament. And uh, going back some weeks, we looked at six of them. Then we've had a three-week break from the Minor Prophets. And then now, we are back reading the Minor Prophets. We have six prophets to go until uh, what churches often call the season of Advent, which is basically leads us into Christmas. So we're going to spend the next six weeks reading a minor prophet each week. And today, as you can guess, we are reflecting upon the minor prophet Nahum. Uh, Now, it's it's worth kind of reloading, getting back into this type of literature. Uh, Because the Old Testament prophets that you read about in the Bible, um, they were odd fellows. Uh, They had a message from God. And they weren't really concerned with niceties or good manners. Uh, As one commentator said, they didn't want admirers. uh, They wanted converts. They wanted people to actually have an experience with God and be changed by it. And we've experienced some of that in the words that we've read in the Minor Prophets already going back a couple of months. Um, Today's prophet, Nahum, is very short. Um, so Laura read for us one chapter, the opening chapter. There's only two other chapters in the whole book. Um, and is a prophet who has one message. And the one message is this. God will judge the evil and injustice of power-hungry human regimes. Uh, God will bring to judgment the evil and injustice of power-hungry human regimes. And in this particular prophecy, Nahum's particular word is against the nation of Assyria. And we'll get to that in a moment. Nahum, as you read through the minor prophets, we've sort of learned over the last few months that you actually, it's kind of a bit of a history lesson as well, because we're learning about the ancient world and the dynamics of the different nations. Nahum gives this prophecy that we read today after the Assyrian empire have actually Um, really kind of attacked and decimated the northern kingdom of Israel. And around 20 years, roughly, before the Assyrian Empire itself actually collapses. So the Assyrians, historically, they were invaded by a combination of the Medes and Babylonians in 612 BC. And this particular prophecy, this word, was actually given around 20, 30 years before that took place. Um, So, as you read through, and you can do that during the week if you want, chapters 2 and 3 are about the destructive rule and the subsequent fall of Assyria and its capital city called Nineveh. Um, And chapter 1, which is what we read, is really the gateway into this message. Um, And it presents God as the all-powerful creator uh, coming to confront the nations of the world and bring his justice on their people. And today we're mainly going to live in chapter one of this prophecy. Um, now, as Nahum opens his message, uh, he uses what's called a theophany. Uh, theophany in the Old Testament refers to those texts that speak about the coming of God. It's usually from a definitive place. So, in the Old Testament, it's usually from Sinai, which is where Moses gets Ten Commandments, or there's a reference to Jerusalem as well, um, and. The disturbance in nature that results from such nearness from God. Uh, These poems are distinct in the imagery they use, usually draws from the most terrifying natural phenomena, the quaking of the earth, the melting of mountains. What a cool image, scary, but cool. Uh, The cracking of thunder, those sorts of things. Examples of this kind of textual form, they're found throughout the Old Testament, Exodus 19, Psalm 50, Isaiah 6, there's a whole range of them. In true poetic form, Nahum uses this kind of type of literature as a way of capturing how it feels to be in the presence of God. Overcome, awe-inspiring, earth-shaking, bone-rattling, was anyone outside last night when that thunder hit and it just scared the bejeevers out of you? Okay, what great timing. Because that's the sort of thing that Nahum is trying to bring our attention to. In speaking of God, Nahum declares in chapter 1, verse 5 the mountains quake before him, the hills melt away, the earth trembles at his presence. On the back of such theophanies, many Old Testament prophets describe their experience of God. Um, And so Isaiah writes in chapter 6, when he had an experience of God, he actually says, Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord, the Almighty. Ezekiel, he's a prophet in the Old Testament, he writes in his first chapter, This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard a voice of one speaking. So these accounts, these theophanies in the Old Testament, are there to remind us of who God, the divine being, is. And I know it sounds crazy, but I think it's really easy to forget this, isn't it? Often we find ourselves perhaps thinking that if there is a God, we want or assume this particular God to be controllable or tame or do for us just as we want. Uh, We can perhaps domesticate God so he kind of fits into our daily schedule or, or, or he lives in our world rather than us living in his world. But according to the prophets and the words of Scripture, the Bible, our God is a consuming fire. He's an all-powerful being. He's this relational energy of Father, Son, and Spirit who sits behind all matter and energy. And as such, I take it that, that God himself and the life he has given you right now and me it's not simply just sort of some riddle to be solved or some experience to be diarized. It's actually more a mystery to be marveled at. It's a re- Actually, it's a relationship to enter, made possible through the Father's grace, the work of the Son, Jesus. This, this is why we have the biblical prophets, to confront us and demand we take God out of whatever lunchbox we've locked him into and sit with him, or actually probably more realistically, sit under him once again. Um, The Old Testament prophets hated the domestication of God, and uh, Nahum is no different in this prophecy. But here in chapter one, even if we are willing to let God perhaps out of this box that we've put him in, uh, there's another unsettling word for us. And it's right up front in verse 2 of Nahum's prophecy. He writes this The Lord, that's reference to God, is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and he vents his wrath against his enemies. Wow. So we've got jealous, we've got vengeance, we have wrath. It's like I'm not sure if I want God to be like that. Um, he certainly doesn't fit in this lunchbox over here that I've put him in, which has a My Little Pony sticker and like a. This is this is kind of full-on stuff, isn't it? This Nahum is saying, jealous, vengeance, wrath. It doesn't sound very tolerant. I guess that's. I don't know, because it's not. Um, what do we make of? Nahum's words about God? Well, I think it's helpful to understand what these words reflect, not so that it can be more comfortable for us, but actually so we can understand and enter into it even deeper in a more holistic, helpful way. Um, Jealousy, this idea, the Lord is a jealous God. Jealousy is sometimes translated uh, zealous, the word, and it's actually a word describing an intense desire for God to maintain his relationship with his people. Uh, It's a sense that God does care when his creatures abuse and oppress those around them. God does care when his people are mocked for trusting in him. God does care deeply about seeing you flourish as a loved and loving creature of his. God cares about his creation. Far from running away from this jealousy, this week I've come to reflect that my prayer is that I would actually know it more, Um, that I would know how loved I am as one who has been rescued by Jesus, and that I would be just as jealous for justice, and for love and for faithfulness as God is. The Lord, says Nahum, is a jealous God. And then the second word that he uses is vengeance. He uses it like three or four times in that section. Now, vengeance, this is not a reference to an irrational or unjust revenge. Okay, Vengeance is not like the schoolyard bully who pushes over all the kids who are smarter than him or the girl who starts spreading all these rumors because she doesn't want that girl to be in the group in year eight. You know, it's not that sort of vengeance. There's an Old Testament theologian, Donald Gower, he describes it this way, God's vengeance is the exact meeting out of justice when it has failed to be upheld at a human level. So I think in other words, Nahum is declaring that the time has finally come For God to make right a situation in the world that has gone terribly wrong. In the context of this actual piece of literature, it's the suffering under the Assyrian Empire that has gone on for so long. And human efforts have not succeeded in breaking their power. Now, in fact, even God's own call to repentance, which was given to this city of Nineveh through Jonah. We read that like five weeks ago. It seems that only had a short-term acceptance, and then they've gone back to their old ways. Uh, God's reaction to all of this is described as wrath against evil. And later in chapter 3, we didn't read it today, but Nahum refers to the actual practice of the Assyrians. And we read in verse 1, it says, Nineveh is the city of bloodshed, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. And the final verse in this whole prophecy is a word that says, who has ever escaped your endless cruelty? Now, it's important to remember these ancient texts we're reading, they are actually historical documents. They were written in the ancient world. uh, And they reflect the history of this world in which you and I live. Uh, Reflecting on the Assyrian Empire itself, uh, a historian, Simon Anglum, writes these words. He said, the Assyrians created the world's first great army and the world's first great empire. Uh, It's pretty amazing, really. However, these were held together by two factors. They had superior abilities in siege warfare and their reliance on sheer, unadulterated terror. Uh, It was Assyrian policy always to demand the examples be made of those who resisted them. So this included deportations of entire people groups, horrific physical punishments. Uh, there was one inscription from a temple in the city of Nimrod, which records the fate of the leaders of the city of Surah on the Euphrates River. And they had actually rebelled against the Assyrian Empire, but then they'd been reconquered. And this king, which I'll get his name wrong, but Ashur, Ashurbanipal, Historian teachers picked me up, uh, history teachers picked me up on that afterwards. But this particular Assyrian king um, reacted to such rebellion against his empire. And uh, this is recorded on on a pillar that we have from archaeology. Remember, this is what Nahum is speaking into. Uh, The king wrote these words, I built a pillar at the city gate and I flayed all the chief men who had revolted And I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I actually walled inside the pillar, and some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes. Cheery guy. Apparently, such punishments were not uncommon. Um, Furthermore, inscriptions recording these vicious acts of retribution were displayed throughout the empire to serve as a warning. There was some bad stuff going down. Now, what does the God of the universe, the God of our universe, the power who has given life and breath and energy to all creatures, what does he think about such a regime? Well, this is what the prophet Nahum is all about. And his response is, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. It's interesting, I think when we, sometimes we proudly declare, you know, our God is not an angry God, we do sort of domesticate him a little bit, a lot, from sort of a roaring lion to like a household kitten. Because the God of the Bible, at least as it's revealed to us, hates all evil and injustice. He hates Deception, manipulation, self righteousness, abuse. It is a wild and powerfully beautiful picture. Because the words in Nahum and the rest of the scriptures is that under God's rule, um, this sort of evil, evil in its entirety, will not have the final word. It's a great message. Evil will not win under this God. But it's also sort of scary as well. Uh, We meant to live our lives scared of God. You may have met some people in Christian circles who sort of appear to just live scared of God's judgment. Um, Because, you know, somewhat we might be glad that God is against evil. That's good. But then kind of freaked out that Maybe that means he's against me because I haven't always done everything right. And uh, all all of us have different stories and, and skeletons in the closet and dark things that we're looking forward to forgetting. And so there's an uneasiness here. I love that God's against evil, but where does that leave me? And here again, these words from Nahum in his first chapter in verse 7. He also says this to us. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. You see, I think the message of Nahum is... Let God be God and trust in Him. Don't box Him into some domesticated version of your own will because God is a wild man, but He is good. And so in humility, worship Him rather than setting yourself up against And I wonder if that is the message of Nahum, ultimately, what that might mean for you, to let God be God of the universe and to trust in him and his word. There is still a troubling dynamic here in Nahum, though, and it's, it's, it's that Nahum is certain that those who put their trust in God will be saved from all judgment on evil. Um, Yet the dynamics of how that can be are not fully revealed in Nahum. Um, The skeptical reader could say, well, this is classic. This is just an ancient person, Nahum, uh, trying to justify hatred with religion. Um, You know, God is going to get you guys over there, but we are fine because I say so. Is that just what this is? Now I'm getting angry at the Assyrians. I would say that would be an incredibly limited reading, not just on the broader word given by the minor prophets themselves, but indeed the whole Bible. Because the tension of why those who trust in God, even though they themselves have done evil, will be spared God's judgment, is actually this tension that sits behind all the words of the prophets. There's a promise there, but there's this tension. What does it look like? How is that going to happen? Why is... And the prophet Micah, who we read some weeks ago, he said the answer to this tension will come from a baby boy born in Bethlehem who will shepherd his people. Um, another prophet, Isaiah, he said this tension will be solved through this suffering servant, as he called him, being pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. In verse 15 of Nahum's first chapter, we read a word of hope. <sighs> he says, Look, they're on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news. These are the exact words, in fact, that the Apostle Paul picks up in Romans, if you go ahead in your Bibles to the New Testament, to speak of the good news of Jesus. Jesus, more than any figure in the Bible, um, knew of the judgment of God upon evil. Jesus knew more about the judgment of God than Nahum did, who was writing this prophecy. And, And he knew it best because his role, his mission, as declared by himself, was to bear it on our behalf. This is the words of all the prophets. The tension in the prophets point to this moment. Such is the jealousy of God that he he himself bears the punishment for our sin. It's incredible, this awe-inspiring, earth-shaking, bone-rattling God of the universe. uh, Within that God, there is Father, Son, Spirit coming up with a plan to bring about both justice for evil and mercy for the repentant. And today we are assured of two great truths in this book of Nahum, and indeed the whole narrative of the Bible, is that God himself is totally out of your control. You cannot box him in. And simultaneously, God himself is good. He is against evil. And he will make all things right, and he will do this through his son, Jesus. Interestingly, as you read through your Bible ahead of Nahum, the New Testament actually now invites us to live for the day of judgment that Jesus will bring, rather than scared of it. To live for the day of judgment. Um, And that's what Peter is writing about here in our second reading. Um, he, He writes these words, he says... But the day of the Lord, that's a day when God will will finally bring judgment. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. In other words, you can't control God. Jesus will return. You've got no idea when it is, neither do I. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything done in it will be laid bare since everything will be destroyed in this way what kind of people ought you to be well you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming he goes on to write for that day God will bring about a new creation a far better one than the one we are experiencing now my question is what does it mean to actually look forward to the day of judgment and I think Well, firstly, Peter says it means live a holy and godly life. In the context of 1 Peter, this means stop domesticating God and accept His uncontrollable grace. Peter writes this earlier in his letter. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Who has given us New birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God will bring judgment on all evil, and you cannot control that. But He has also made it possible for you to be set free of this judgment by bearing your punishment on Himself. That is Jesus' death on the cross, and you can't control that either. And what I mean by that is, regardless of how you feel about yourself, uh, you cannot stop God loving you. You can't domesticate Him to be just a big version of yourself. And we go through all different seasons in our own journey of life. We can go through a season where we say, you know what, I just, I hate myself. I am ashamed of myself, therefore God must hate me. Or we might say, I'm just so disappointed with myself, therefore God is disappointed with me. But we can't do that to God. It is limiting him into a box that is way too small. God has made you, he has gifted you. He can see who you will become if you continue to let him shape you and change and grow you. If you refuse him, if you reject his gift of forgiveness and new life, then you will bear the judgment for sin and evil on that last day. But that would just be madness because God has done everything to rescue you from it. Uh, To live a holy and godly life is to accept what this uncontrollably good God has actually done for you. Receive it. And secondly, to look forward to the day of God is, I think, to allow this holiness and godliness to start or to continue to change you today, tomorrow, this week uh, as we grow up to seek to actually love what God loves and hate what God hates. It's okay to hate injustice. It's not unchristian. Because the heart of God hates injustice and we grow up like him. To know that evil will not have the final word and that Jesus is the one who will not just bring it to an end but actually usher in something new, a new creation as Peter says. The heavenly kingdom or the glorious feast of the lamb or whatever title you want to use from the Bible. The prophet Nahum He warns of the coming judgment of God against all evil. Yet he maintains that trusting in God's goodness is the path forward. And so I wonder what it might look like for you to continue to let your life be shaped by the kingdom that Jesus will usher in. It might mean taking Jesus seriously for the first time ever in your life and actually realizing there is some dynamic happening here between you and the God of the universe and who Jesus is and it might actually lead you into faith in God for the first time. Perhaps even this afternoon you might want to say a prayer to God which is your prayer and it's the first kind of honest prayer you've prayed. Maybe that is a response or it could be letting your life continue to be shaped by this God that you have put your trust in. In who you are, what you love, how you are growing, what you fight for. There's a word here, not to fall for the kingdom of Assyria. Which looked so big and so important and so demanding of your allegiance. But that, that's any kingdom. You know, this morning um, we had someone come to church, and um, a couple who I've known for a little while, but they're not regulars with us. But they came along this morning. As she was leaving, um, she said, "You know, you know that I'm an Assyrian." And I said, "Ah, oh, I didn't." And she said, "Yeah, obviously there's no country anymore, but like they were scattered, and Russia, and and she said, "I'm I'm an Assyrian uh, by blood. You know, if you trace me back to the ancient world." And we had this incredible conversation because what we got to actually then talk about is that the word of Nahum is against the nation of Assyria and what they did in the 500 BC, 600 BCs. But it's actually also against every human empire that has set itself up on this idea that the leader, the rulers are God themselves and they can do anything to people. It's the story of the Greek Empire. It's the story of the Roman Empire. It's the story of the British Empire. It's the story of all human empires that set up a kingdom that says, this is it. You know, we finally made it, like the Tower of the Babel. Uh, you know, it could be the kingdom of corporate Sydney that sort of goes, this is it. This is the It could be the kingdom of kind of self-glorification. It's kind of the faux kingdom of any human dominance. This is what Nahum is speaking against and what Jesus comes to give us an alternative to. Uh, Being an agent of God's eternal kingdom now in the present is actually what Christian faith is all about. Uh, In whatever so-called earthly kingdom you may find yourself in, be it your workplace, your family, your friends, your hobbies, your sport teams. Jesus invites us to trust him and then live as followers of his in this coming week as kind of ambassadors, the New Testament would say, or agents of grace and justice and peace led by God himself and the kingdom he will eventually usher in. And I don't know what that might look for you this week, but maybe it's standing up for someone in your workplace who actually has had an injustice against them. And you, it's just a small word. It's a word of encouragement. Maybe there's an opportunity for you to show grace to someone this week and be an agent of God's eternal kingdom. Who knows what God will open up for you, but this is the life that the son Jesus calls us into. And so I'm going to pray now that that you might continue to allow God to lead you into that life through trusting in Jesus and being set free to uh, love others and be gracious. So I'm going to pray and then I'm just going to explain how we're going to sort of wrap up our service. Um, Let's pray. Um, Lord and Father, I thank you that you are indeed... Um, An uncontrollably good God, that your love for each one of us is uh, endless, and that we can't control that. It's just the way it is. Lord, I thank you that you're a God who will bring an end to evil, and um, we yearn for that day. We pray until that day comes that you may help each one of us to be agents of your grace and justice and peace in the place that you have us. And give us a joy to know and to be changed by you. And Lord, uh, we ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.